Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories, all Basutu Convention Party takes early election lead. China opposes a draft of UN sanctions against South Sudan. And Kenyan government appeals court ruling on security laws. In economics, Egypt's central bank sells $420 million in interbank market. And in sports news, Mali beats South Africa to win CAF Under-17 championship. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon has congratulated the people of Lesotho for their peaceful conduct during the elections that took place on Saturday. Ban commended the country's independent electoral commission for preparing the elections, as well as SEDEC, which has led efforts to peacefully resolve political challenges in Lesotho. Meanwhile, Lesotho's Prime Minister Tom Tabane's All-Basotho Convention is leading early results in the country's snap election, with 35 out of 80 constituencies. Deputy Prime Minister Muteja Metsing has so far only managed to get two constituencies. Ntakwanagatane reports. A total of 47 of the 80 constituencies have returned the results. 35 have gone to Tom Tabane's ABC. 10 have gone to the Opposition Democratic Congress of former Prime Minister Bakari Tamasisidi. Two have gone to Mutejwa Nizing's Lesotho Congress for Democracy. A surprising result is that the Royal Village of Mazing has gone to the DC despite Tom Tabane vowing to protect the monarchy in a case in which the Attorney General is suing the king. Counting continues this morning. Mali's government has signed a preliminary peace proposal meant to end fighting with northern separatists. Tareg-led rebels, however, demanded more time before agreeing to any accord. Schools of people protested in the northern Malian town of Kidal yesterday against the accord which was negotiated in neighboring Algeria. The United Nations brokered deal aimed to tackle decades of uprisings in northern Mali, recent fighting on the ground and differences over the political status of the desert region have complicated efforts to broker a lasting deal. Sierra Leone's Vice President Samuel Sam Sumana has voluntarily quarantined himself after one of his security guards died from Ebola. It's the first time a high-ranking official is quarantined for fear of spreading the epidemic, which claimed more than 9,000 lives in the world. In reaction to the emergence of new cases of Ebola in recent weeks, Sierra Leone's President Ernest Baikoroma on Saturday reinstated travel restrictions he recently lifted in order to stimulate economic activity and relax citizens. 
Some 35,000 young Namibians have submitted written applications countrywide demanding urban land and the biggest civil mass action since the country's independence in 1990. Organizer Job Amupanda says the highest number of applications has been submitted in the port of Valfish Bay. According to Amopunda, his group of activists will engage municipalities over the coming months to discuss the way forward. He says if there is no satisfactory solution by the 31st of July, they will invade land. Rwandan investigators have urged the government to take action against the British Broadcasting Corporation and ban its radio programs from the country's airwaves. This over a controversial documentary questioning official versions of the 1994 genocide. The probe found the British broadcaster broke Rwandan law on genocide denial in its report on the massacres that left around 800,000 people dead. The BBC has rejected all the accusations against it. The focus of the probe was the program Rwanda the Untold Story which was broadcast on the BBC's second television channel, BBC Two, in August last year and highlighted criticism over Rwandan President Paul Kagame's alleged role in the events. And finally, South African President Jacob Zuma has praised the Russian Federation for its cooperation regarding the repatriation of the remains of Moses Kotane and J.B. Marx. Zuma was speaking at the Waterkloof Air Force Base in the capital, Pretoria, where the remains of the two struggle icons arrived from Russia yesterday. Zuma says the struggle icons have returned to a democratic South Africa that they fought for. We have brought them to a free South Africa. South Africa is today a democratic country based on the rule of law and fundamental human rights, largely owing to the sacrifices made by Moses Kotan, J.P. Marx, and all other leaders. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.06 Central African time on this Monday, the 2nd of March, the 61st day of the year 2015, rather, with 304 days left in the year. I'm taking us back to last year. In our top story, the party of Lesotho's Prime Minister Tom Tabane has had an early lead in initial results from an election in the Mountain Kingdom, which held an early vote in an attempt to overcome tension among political factions. Tabane's Albasutu Convention Party has won in 35 out of 80 voting districts. Earlier, we spoke to our correspondent in Maseru Ntakwanangatane for the latest on the ground. Well, right now, Lulu, all I can say is that everyone is really holding their breath. But you remember that when counting of results in an election happens, usually the people out in the villages, even before the result gets to the main center, will probably know what is happening and they're communicating with each other. So in a sense, we see people celebrating, perhaps in advance, because they know what is happening. But um, at this point in time, really, everyone holding their breath in terms of who it is that will lead Lesotho following this election, really. When should we expect the final results to be announced? Well, according to the Independent Electoral Commission, we expect that 
the final results of the constituencies. Now, you remember that there are 80 constituencies in Lesotho, and the final results of the constituencies will probably be in at the latest by tomorrow. But remember that Lesotho has a two-tier model of elections, and that means that we have 80 seats in the National Assembly that are constituency seats. We also have 40 seats that are proportional representation seats. That means now the IEC has to go and calculate who gets what percentage of the 40 proportional representation seats. And according to the IEC, we expect that that final result of the 120 seats of parliament will then be available at the latest by Thursday. Lulu? Now, let's speak on the voting day on Saturday. What is the mood like on the ground? And, uh, you know, were there any incidents uh, that were reported maybe of uh, violence or anything of a sort? Well, there were no incidents of violence. In fact, the police commissioner, the acting police commissioner, Holomo Mudibedi, has come out to congratulate Basutu for demonstrating maturity in these elections. The Sadak Observer Mission, headed by Minister Nathan Guanama Shabani, has also come out to say Basutu acted in their culture of peace by being peaceful during these elections, by showing law and stability, by maintaining law and stability during these elections. And this is from the side of the observers. Now, from the side of the IEC, there were a few incidents, but the IEC at the end of the voting day came out to say they were all resolved. There were some constituencies that didn't have the names of the parties that were contesting the elections on the ballot paper, but that was resolved. Some ballot papers were taken from other voting stations. Now, Ntakwana, let's speak on the sticking point, which uh, I think everyone will be looking at, the the issue of uh, the court case against uh, Prime Minister Tom Tabane and the King, King Litsia III. What does this mean if the Basutu Convention wins this election? What does this mean and what happens to that case? Well, let me start here, Lulu. Interestingly enough, the royal village of Matieng, the constituency, has actually gone to the DC. Yes, it is a difference of about 105 votes between the Democratic Congress, the opposition that is backing the Attorney General in actually suing the King and the Prime Minister. And we had thought that because the Prime Minister had come out to say he has vowed to fight for the monarchy at all costs, that he will protect the dignity and person of the King at every cost, that perhaps that would have swayed the vote, especially in that royal village, in his favor, but it hasn't. Takwana, um, let's speak to the issue of uh, the opposition parties. What has been their reaction with regards to Election Day and uh, what seemingly the rumor mill is putting out there to say the Old Basutu Convention is likely to win this election? Well, at this point in time, Lulu, we are waiting to see who actually gets to win in a coalition because at this point in time it's really not a party race it is a coalition race mm-hmm. because the Obasutu convention has come out to say that it will go into a coalition with the Lesotho National Party the reformed congress of Lesotho which broke away from the Lesotho congress for democracy from Mutecha meetings Lesotho congress for democracy also says it will go into a coalition with Kabane and Nasiribane mm-hmm. and the ABC and the BNP now on the other hand the Lesotho Congress for Democracy has said that it wants to go into a coalition with the Democratic Congress, the main opposition that won the main, the, a lot of seats in the past election. And so these are the two sides of the coalitions that we might see come into play when the results have come out. So all of that can only be determined when the numbers are out and the proportional seats have been allocated. In the last election, we saw the LCD 
turning around to get a lot of proportional seats because they had won a lot of votes percentage-wise, even mm-hmm. though they had few seats on the constituency side, but they won a lot of seats on the proportional side. This is how they ended up getting a lot of seats. So, you know, this is really a wait-and-see game until the final result is out and until we know who is courting who to go into a coalition mm-hmm. with. And that was our correspondent in the Sutun Takwanangatane joining us earlier on the line from the capital in Maseru. It is 8.12 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A U.S.-backed draft resolution that would establish a sanctions regime for South Sudan looks in doubt after China shot down the idea by critiquing its logic. The draft resolution, seen by SABC News, threatens to impose travel bans and asset freezes on individuals who continue to undermine a peaceful, a final peace agreement by an IGAD deadline of March the 5th. The draft, which would establish a panel of experts and a sanctions committee, also threatens an arms embargo, although stops short of imposing one. China, as a permanent member of the council with the power of the veto, expressed concern at instituting punitive measures while the parties are negotiating willingly. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Despite frustration growing at the slow progress in peace negotiations and continued fighting notwithstanding a cessation of hostilities agreement, China has poured cold water on any punitive measures by the council through the words of Ambassador Liu Ji. The question arises as to what is the best way to facilitate this process. Whether at this moment, when the two sides are negotiating for a solution, you talk about imposing sanctions. Frankly, I don't see the logic behind this, and we have never seen sanctions as something that should be applied simply for the sake of applying sanctions. But UN officials have publicly and privately expressed their concern at the slow progress in reaching agreement, after a cessation of hostilities accord was first penned in January last year. Over 100,000 people are crammed into eight UN protection sites in the country, while almost 4 million are expected to face food insecurity this year alone, all due to a power struggle between the leadership of both sides. But China believes punishing the parties at this critical stage might be unhelpful. By nature, sanctions are a punitive um, thing to do. I think there's no... Uh, misunderstanding about that. It, it intends to punish. But they are walking to the negotiation table. They are talking across the negotiation table to apply a punitive measure now would send out some, what kind of a message? Right message or wrong message? Seven ceasefires have failed amidst a power struggle between President Salva Kiir and his former deputy Riek Machar, in which at least 10,000 people have died. China, that held the presidency of the Council for February, said the highest priority of the international community should be to encourage in a constructive manner the negotiations in progress. We need to be guided by the thinking of what is the best for the country what the two parties, the government and the opposition, are doing right now and what is the best role the council can play to 
make sure that the negotiations will bear fruit uh, in a better environment rather than in a more complicated environment. So if we want to help, we should be truly helpful. The U.S. and others have expressed growing frustration that the leadership of both the SPLM in government and in opposition have failed to put their narrow agendas aside for the sake of the country. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. Women in South Sudan are turning the challenges they face on a daily basis into opportunities. That's according to UN Women, which has been supporting peace efforts through women groups in the African country. The organization has worked with a number of groups to develop a document known as the Women's Agenda for Peace and Sustainable Development in South Sudan. Susan Dokolo has been speaking to the UN Women Country Representative is a duo Derek's Briggs. Let things happen for women. Let uh, economic empowerment happen for women. Let political participation happen for women. Let education and literacy happen for women. Let the good life happen for women. And the situation at which we are at in South Sudan at this point, I would say, and I'm sure government will agree, let peace happen for women in South Sudan. How possible is it uh, to empower women in this situation? Well, it's possible to empower women um, in all facets of life. In the midst of conflict, you find women who are rearing out their heads and turning the challenges they face into opportunities. We see some hope that the economic empowerment initiatives would actually turn into something positive uh, post-peace in South Sudan. As a UN Women Organization, what uh, other things are you people doing in order to complement the peace efforts? Well, as an intergovernmental agency, we um, support all the efforts of government to bring peace to the country. We are also working with uh, women's groups, uh, particularly the South Sudan Peace Network. And uh, we have supported the women who have uh, put together a document called the Women's Agenda for Peace and Sustainable Development in South Sudan. And that document uh, talks about what women are looking for in the peace process as well as post-peace process. So my message to the women of South Sudan is we might have uh, different um, ethnicities, we might have come from different political backgrounds, but as a woman and as a mother, peace should be at the heart and peace should be on the tongue. So women of South Sudan should embrace peace. That was Isedua Derek's Briggs, South Sudan representative for UN Women, speaking to Susan Dokolo. It's 8.18 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1996. South African President Nelson Mandela addresses the National Assembly of Mali. President Mandela emphasized that his visit to Mali was about building economic, cultural and political links between Mali and South Africa. And that was Today in History in 1996. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
The Kenyan government is filing an appeal in the country's appeal court seeking to retain new to retain eight new security laws quashed last week by five judges of the High Court. The laws were passed by Parliament and officially signed by President Uhuru Kenyatta last December. The leader of Kenya's main opposition coalition for reforms and democracy, Kord Raila Odinga, has denounced the laws and described them as draconian. James Manula reports from Nairobi. The Kenyan government's filing of the appeal against the quashing of eight laws that the country's main opposition party could described as draconian is spearheaded by Mwangi Njoroge, a lawyer from the Attorney General's office in the capital Nairobi. Mwangi Njoroge explains why, on behalf of the government, is appealing in the country's court of appeal against judgment by five judges of the Kenya High Court. There are some provisions which have been uh, declared unconstitutional by the court. We want to examine them in detail. We are going to scrutinize them. They have been declared unconstitutional as of now. The respondent has a right to appeal if they feel discontented. The five judges spent more than five hours reading their bulky judgment, which among other things described eight of the new laws as unconstitutional. The unconstitutional laws include sections that impose harsh fines on media outlets that broadcast images deemed offensive by the government. Other sections limit the number of refugees allowed in Kenya and allows suspects to be held without a trial for 360 days, four times longer than before. One of the five judges, Isaac Alenaola, read out the quashing of some of the new laws that relate to freedom of the press and terrorism. Section 6 of the Penal Code is hereby declared unconstitutional for violating the freedom of expression in the media, guaranteed under Articles 33 and 34 of the Constitution. Section 64 of the Prevention of Terrorism Act is also declared unconstitutional. Reflecting on the judgment delivered by the court, Moses Wetangula, the third in hierarchy in the Opposition Coalition for Reforms and Democracy Court, said, We are gratified that 10 sections of the Security Amendment Law have been declared unconstitutional, null and void, and inapplicable in a modern democratic society. Laws that were brought relating to the freedom of the media, the right to a fair trial have all been declared to be an assault on the Constitution. Agina Ojuang, a Kenyan lawyer specializing on constitutional issues, said the government's legal chance of challenging the judgment of the five judges rests with the Supreme Court, the highest court on the land after the Court of Appeal. The Supreme Court will be the final place that the matter will rest since it touches on matters of constitutional interpretation. Benny Mulwa, the Kenyan national representative of victims of terror attacks, was not happy with the declaration of the new laws as unconstitutional. The law that we currently have did not have very specific provisions for fighting terrorism because that's where our primary concern is. In our view, there needs to be extensive consultation so that we are able to come up with laws that truly address the challenges that we are facing. Jonathan Murathe, a Nairobi high school teacher who was in court to listen to the judgment, had this to say. 
in my view, the general judgment was fantastic. What the government should have done initially is to set laws to equip the police, secure our borders, and protect the terrorists from coming into the country. That was Jonathan Morathe, a Nairobi high school teacher, who was in a Nairobi court to listen to the judgment that went in favor of Kenya's main opposition party, Coalition for Reforms and Democracy Code. Kenya, one of the countries with the peacekeeping troops in neighboring Somalia, has over the past two years recorded a spate of terrorist attacks carried out by Al-Shabaab militants, resulting in the death of more than 200 people. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Going back in time to today in 1975, a terrorist bombing of a bus in Nairobi, Kenya, kills 27 people and injures about 100. That was today in history in the year 1975. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, The head of the Nigerian army has visited soldiers in the northeastern town of Baga, telling troops that the conflict against Boko Haram will soon be over. Boko Haram fighters overran Baga on January the 3rd and are thought to have killed hundreds, if not more, in what is feared to be the country's worst massacre in the six-year insurgency. The military said on Saturday that the remote town in the far north of Borno State was retaken after two days of fighting, killing a large number of terrorists. The offensive is part of a fight back by Nigeria and regional powers against Boko Haram to secure and stabilize the rest of region to make a v- voting possible at the general election on March 28th. For more on this, Jose Khodingake spoke to Ryan Cummings, chief analyst at South African think tank Red24. I think that although there's obviously been significant gains made against the Bokram extremist sects, as you've mentioned, you know, we're still not at a juncture where we can say that the group is being defeated or that there's a situation to pose a minimal threat to the elections. And I think what we've noted is that Bokram has been kicked out, so to say, of several major towns in the rural areas of northeast Nigeria. And what we're seeing is that the sect is unable at this present time to basically capture more territory. But what Bokaram is doing in response to the Nigerian government's counterinsurgency operations is that it's increasing its urban terrorism campaign. So, for example, in the past 10 days, we saw a spate of suicide bomb attacks, you know, targeting cities such as Potiskum in Yobe State. The city of Biu in Borno State was targeted. The city of Jos, which is located in central Nigeria and which is the administrative capital of Plateau State, was targeted in a bombing as well. So the biggest concern at the moment is that Bokaram, maybe being defeated in rural northeast Nigeria, but it's increasing its attacks in the country's major cities. And this could even pose a bigger threat to the holding of elections in comparison to what it was doing in the rural areas, because obviously your major cities in Nigeria is going to be the focal points where millions and millions of voters are going to be casting their ballots come 28th of March. 
Now, you have said that there is still the threat of bombings by Boko Haram in urban areas. The group seems to be targeting populated commercial areas, you know, and they're using women and children strapped with explosives. Now, this is obviously more difficult for the army to detect. So what can be done now to overcome this threat? It's extremely difficult because the, the counterinsurgency operation that the Nigerian government has launched, you know, as mentioned against Boko Haram in rural northeastern Nigeria, has been undertaken without any similar type of offensive targeting Boko Haram positions within, you know, major cities and other urban environments. And this is obviously of concern because I think what a lot of people tend to forget is that Boko Haram's capturing of territory and holding of territory was a development that only occurred as, you know, as late as July 2014. That's when the first town, which was Damboa in northeast Nigeria, was captured by the group. But previous to that, Boko Haram, you know, they operated as the quintessential terrorism group, you know, conducting bomb attacks, suicide bombings, car bombings, and even kidnappings, you know, within major cities. And the problem is, it seems that the Nigerian government is suggesting that it's a problem only in the rural areas of Nigeria, but obviously not a problem in the major cities. And again, to secure a major city is extremely difficult because you're going to have to start you know, launching a counter-terrorism operation which occurs within densely populated areas and where the potential fallout of those operations can impact millions and millions of civilians. Um, you know, encountering urban terror, you need to focus on having solid intelligence networks, you know, that can provide you um, pre-warning of possible attacks, and you also need the local cooperation of, of citizens who are able to provide you, you intelligence and information on potential terrorists and the areas in which they're residing. Now, Boko Haram started this terror campaign on civilians as far back as 2009, and the impression was that the authorities were not interested in going after them and were doing nothing to protect the people. Why now the sudden fever to take on Boko Haram? Is it the embarrassment because Cameroon and Chad were vigorous against the insurgents, especially when they started going into Cameroon? Yes, I think it's a a combination of various issues. I think that the Nigerian government was always committed to fighting Boko Haram, but were curtailed by various issues. Obviously, there was a lot of corruption within the armed forces, which left a lot of the soldiers with a lack of adequate resources, weaponry, and even, you know, supplies to fight the group. And this resulted in Boko Haram almost getting the preeminence, you know, over the Nigerian security forces and, you know, gave the group the opportunity to expand across the northeast. But I also think a major reason why the Nigerian government was possibly ineffective in its methodology in countering Boko Haram was because the group was operating in neighboring countries. So Boko Haram there's evidence to suggest that they were operating in Niger, they were operating in Cameroon, and may even have established a, an operational presence in Chad. And the Nigerian government, unfortunately, its mandate only extends to its own borders. So what was happening was that the Nigerian government was launching counterinsurgency operations targeting Boko Haram positions. But what the group would do then was just to cross over the border into neighboring countries where the Nigerian government obviously didn't have a mandate to conduct counterinsurgency operations. And Boko Haram used these areas, you know, to recruit, obviously, to resupply their forces, but also to launch cross-border attacks into Nigeria. And just in terms of more of the urban presence, again, 
I think that we need to realize that obviously routing Boko Haram's operational cells out of urban centers is a complicated undertaking due to the fact that you're often not going to have the support of local communities. You often don't have access to the intelligence networks that is needed, you know, to, to counter urban terror. And also the area in which the group operates is quite a large geographical region you know, that extends from northern Nigeria to the central regions, including the capital, Abuja, to as far west as the city of Sokoto, which is on the border with Benin. That was Ryan Cummings, chief analyst at South African think tank Red24, speaking to Jose Dingake. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. Good morning, UN Secretary-General Ban Ki-moon congratulates the people of Lesotho for their peaceful conduct during the elections that took place on Saturday. The International Criminal Court's Chief Prosecutor calls on Ugandan Lord Resistance Army Rebel Chief Joseph Connie to surrender, vowing he would receive a fair trial just as his deputy faces. And Sierra Leone's Vice President Samuel Sam Sumuna voluntarily quarantines himself after one of the security guards died from Ebola. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, groundbreaking community-led approaches to combating wildlife crime around the world were shared at an international symposium which took place last week in Wildersdrift near Johannesburg, South Africa. The three-day meeting was attended by researchers, community groups, government officials, UN agencies, and non-profit organizations. To get a sense of how the meeting went, we are now joined on the line by Rosie Cooney, Chair of the International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN, Sustainable Use and Livelihoods Specialist Group. Good morning, Rosie, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, and thank you very much for having me here. Now, Rosie, how did the meeting, did the meeting manage to meet most of your expectations and was it a success? Yes, we had a wonderful meeting actually. It was fantastic to bring these very different groups together, all the way from community representatives to, for instance, the Secretary General of the Convention on Biological Diversity, the major global agreement for biodiversity. Yeah, it was very successful. People are very positive about it. We had um, we had some very clear messages coming out of the meeting about how to tackle illegal wildlife trade. I'll tell you a bit about uh, the key the key messages we found. Um, it's really clear that we can't just see poaching and illegal wildlife trade as a conservation issue. Obviously, it's terrible for the rhinos, the elephants, and all the other species that are getting devastated. But this is also robbing the natural wealth of communities who are on the front line. So our symposium was all about looking at those communities 
and saying, <clears throat> how do we include them in these efforts to reduce poaching and illegal wildlife trade? Now, Rosie, in light of, of the current poaching crisis, it is a crime. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously community leaders came together and, and touched on issues of how to, um, so to speak, eradicate it and, uh, you know, come up with uh, corrective measures. What key strategies were shared at the meeting on, on how to tackle this form of crime? Because it seems to be escalating, especially on the African continent, especially in, in, in countries like South Africa, which has a, a huge number of rhino elephants that are, seem to be getting depleted. Yeah, they are getting depleted very rapidly. Well, I think the key message, or one of the key messages from the meeting, is that communities have to be involved in the response. They are the people there out on the front line. They are that they can be the eyes and the ears of enforcement efforts. But they're only going to do that if they have really good relationships with the enforcement authorities. And one of the really critical ingredients, too, is that they need to benefit from wildlife and from conservation. And that can happen in many different ways. It can be purely from the jobs as game guards, the feeling of pride, a sense of ownership of wildlife, but also really tangible economic benefits, which may be from tourism. It could be from their own hunting. It could be from trophy hunting. So we really need to focus on ways to make conservation and wildlife really important to communities so that they're willing to cooperate with authorities and work with them to combat poaching. Now, are governments serious about fighting wildlife crime, especially on the African continent? Well, I think that probably varies enormously. Yes, overall, I think that there is a huge commitment that's been mobilized in the last couple of years towards fighting this. And South Africa is certainly heavily engaged. We were lucky enough to have Minister Edna Edna Malewa Mm. from the DEA to open the meeting and another representative of DEA there. And they've clearly really taken these messages strongly on board in the last couple of years and are now very heavily focused on combating poaching and illegal wildlife trade. And particularly now in a way which really does engage local communities and responds to their needs. Now, Rosie, you know, I've been chatting to my colleagues with regards to this and it, it, it baffles me even now. And as I pose this question to you, I don't know what the response is like or what what to expect. We've had um, President of Zimbabwe having slaughtered um, as part of celebrations of his 91st birthday bash in Zimbabwe, um, slaughtering elephants. What does this really mean? And what sort of message are we, is, he, is, is the country sending across, especially to um, poachers and to the people who are trying to um, curb and assist in, the, in, in, in ensuring the safety of these uh, animals? Well, I'm, I don't know the details there, but is, was that part of a trophy hunting program? Was it trophy hunting? We, we actually don't have the exact details. It's just part of a, his birthday celebrations at the okay. weekend to say um, elephants would be slaughtered as part of a celebrations. So it, it would be interesting to find out exactly um, what was happening then, what the thinking was behind um, a slaughtering of elephants. Because for me, it was uh, something very, very new. I've never come across that before. Yeah, well, look, I can't comment on the details because <laughs> I'd, I'd really hate to uh, 
you know, comment on something I know nothing about. <laughs> but I, w- I would just like to comment on trophy hunting because a lot of people, you know, in a lot of these countries in, in South Africa and across Southern Africa, um, a lot of trophy hunting does go on and people often make the same criticism that what sort of message is this sending? Now, Rosie, just to, to, to jump in there, what is trophy hunting? Well, people define it in different ways. We generally define it as trophy, as hunting of a very small number of animals in a managed way for a lot of economic benefit, um, usually with hunters from other areas who have traveled in to carry that out. So mm-hmm. it's quite distinct from, say, subsistence hunting or hunting to trade the products. Mm-hmm. And while this can be done, it can be done very badly, but it can also be done in ways which really do benefit local communities and actually contribute to combating poaching and illegal wildlife trade. We do need to draw this distinction when we're talking about poaching and illegal wildlife trade Mm. between sustainable regulated trade, which can actually give communities strong incentives to protect wildlife where they benefit, and this kind of widespread illicit killing and trafficking. Now, Rosie, the conference has ended. Where to from now? Well, we're sitting here at the moment turning it all into nice policy briefs and papers, and we're going to very much continue working on this and taking this message forward. We'd like to look at the issues in other regions. This was quite an Africa-focused meeting. We had some people from overseas, but we're now going to try to develop workshops in Asia and Latin America looking at the illegal trade crisis there and see um, how communities can get engaged in those regions. We're taking the message to CITES, the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, and the CBD, the Convention on Biological Diversity. We'll also be working with development agencies and other NGOs, the people who actually implement programs on the ground, to try to raise understanding of how we can get communities involved. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And that was Rosie Cooney, Chair of the IUCN Sustainable Youth and Livelihood Specialist Group. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Today's question, we pose, are African governments serious about tackling wildlife crime? Give us your thoughts and your views on this issue. Email us on info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica or at Channel Africa one Are African governments serious about tackling wildlife crime? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. As Zimbabwe celebrated veteran leader Robert Mugabe's 91st birthday, more woes for the remaining white farmers. About 500 white farmers remain on the farms from the estimated 5,000 before the year 2000. But this could soon change. Shingai Nyoka reports from Harare. Zimbabwe President Robert Mugabe cutting more than half a dozen cakes to mark his 91st birthday. 
The million-dollar public bash held in the resort town of Victoria Falls on Saturday was attended by thousands of diplomats, party loyalists, and youth. Among the many presents lavished on the president, a 1955 Ford Montero, his first car, and his gift to supporters, more white-owned farms. 40 and 123 in just a small district of our country, some of our leaders were hiding them. Lots of safaris, very few are African. The majority are white. Fifteen years ago, often violent land takeovers of white-owned farms left Zimbabwe poorer, politically isolated and dependent on food aid. Western countries have gradually eased sanctions against the country in return for political and economic reforms. But President Mugabe is now warning of more invasions of the remaining agro-businesses and animal conservancies. But we are now going to invade these forests. Our people cannot be suffering and even suffering from sanctions by the United States when the United States has lots of land occupied by their farmers as safari owners. They can't have it both ways. If they want to be friends, they must be friends with us. The recent purge of senior officials, including the former Vice President Joyce Mujuru, points to internal party tension between the reformists and the hardliners. Now with these rebels out of the way, President Mugabe says he will evict white farmers that they were protecting as he tries to create a legacy of championing black empowerment in his remaining years in office. I'm Shingai Nyoka in Victoria Falls. It's 8.45 Central African time and our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhuku. Egypt's central bank has sold for $20 million in the interbank market. The bank says the sale was made to meet outstanding demand for staple commodities, raw materials and pharmaceuticals. Central Bank Governor Hisham Rames says that the bank will continue to use the interbank market in the coming period along regular dollar auctions. Meanwhile, Egypt's state grain buyer, the General Authority for Supply Commodities, has negotiated lower prices with suppliers for a tender to buy wheat in the Egyptian pound. Offers for Russian wheat were lowered, while those for Ukraine were higher. Traders have said delivery of the wheat would be from March the 15th to the 31st. Libya's oil production is now at more than 400,000 barrels per day. Libya's crude output has been battered by fighting between two rival uh, governments battling for control of the North African country. Production is well below 1.6 million barrels per day, levels before the 2011 civil war that ousted Muammar Gaddafi. South Africa's largest trade federation, COSATU, has called on seven uh, of its affiliates to take part in the Central Executive Committee meeting, which is scheduled to kick off today. The union suspended their participation in COSATU CEC in November last year in protest against the expulsion of another union, NUMSA, from the Labour Federation. NUMSA was expelled last year after it refused to support the ruling ANC in the May elections. NUMSA and the seven unions are previously called for the CEC to be convened to address in 
internal challenges. They have written a letter to the ANC mediation team saying they will not participate in the Labour Federation's meetings until Noomsa's expulsions is reserved, or rather reversed. Kosatu's president is Dumotlamini. If what they say is supported by the majority of the Central Legislative Committee, it will be good. But if uh, the majority doesn't uh, accept their view, it's still a democracy in the CEC. They must respect that. They must not run out. Comrades must come back. I'm calling all of them to come back to Kosato, except Numsa, which is still expelled and out of Kosato. The Basotu Enterprises Development Corporation has launched an empowerment project that is aimed at bringing creative industries into the mainstream. The Creative Industries Empowerment Project is done in collaboration with the Tourism Ministry as well as the Private Sector Competitiveness and Economic Diversification Project through the support of the World Bank. The joint program is aimed at promoting entrepreneurship within the creative industries such as pottery, handcrafts, jewellery and woodwork in a bid to create jobs and reduce poverty, a challenge that is ravaging the mountain kingdom. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.64 South African rands, 9.47 Botswana Pula, 6.85 in Zambia, 0.64 British pound, 0.88 across the euro. Gold, 1.221 dollars, platinum, 1.187 dollars an ounce, brand crude, 6.2 dollars, 1.7 cents a barrel. That's an economic update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with football news, Technical Committee Chairman of the Nigerian Football Federation, Felix Angiswa Agu, has criticized Stephen Keshi for saying a new deal offered by him to him by the Football Authority amounted to a slave contract. The 52-year-old Keshi reportedly made the remarks after receiving his new contract following an eight-month wait. A debate had raged in Nigeria over whether Keshi should be given a new deal. Despite leading the Super Eagles to the 2013 Africa Cup of Nations title in South Africa. However, he failed to qualify Nigeria for the recent Africa Cup of Nations tournament in Equatorial Guinea, dividing opinion on whether he should continue as coach. Nevertheless, Keshi says he had received a new deal, though he was not too impressed with what was offered to him. In response, NFF Technical Committee Chairman Angisa Agu says Keshi should direct his reservations about the new offer to the the NFF and stop embarrassing the country or his potential employers in the media. Mali have been crowned the new African junior champions this after they defeated South Africa by two goals to nil in the final of the 2015 Under-17 African Youth Championships in Nimenejeo on Sunday evening. It was a high-tempo game which saw the physically bigger Malians using their imposing stature to dictate the pace. But despite the scoreline the South Africans gave as much as they received throughout the 90 minutes, standout goalkeeper Mondi Mpoto and defender 
Reeve Frosler were in the thick of action from the word go and respectively came to the rescue of the South Africans as the West Africans sought an early goal. It was a physical first half with Amajimbo's handling aerial balls, well, but Mali kept on the pressure, and despite going to half-time goalers, both teams had created many chances. After some constant pressure at the start of the second half, the Malians duly took the lead through industrious striker Saki Bakako in the 65th minute, following some indecisive marking at the corner. It was game over in the 78th minute when Ali Mali doubled Mali's lead with 12 minutes remaining, getting just reward for another sustained period of pressure to inflict the killer blow with the curling shot that gave Mpoto no chance. Meanwhile, Nigeria finished fourth at the 2015 Africa Youth Championships after losing 3-0 to the Guinea side in the third and fourth place playoff match at the Stadio General on Sunday evening. The current world champions will be disappointed with their run in the continental showpiece, especially due to the fact that they were viewed as favourites to win. China Africa's Tony Bani reports. And the game was off to a predictable fast start with both sides looking to win the third place match at the State General SK. After a couple of team efforts, however, Iglesias had led the lead 28 minutes into the game when Victor Oshihele bundled in a superb team effort. But indeed, it was the Guineans who had the last laugh. Back home, former Bafana Bafana and Kazuchi's midfielder John Shoes Moshewu has been discharged from hospital. After spending close to a month on a bed at the Johannesburg Charlotte Matlega Hospital, the 1996 AFCON winning player is now back at home. The news have been confirmed by his mother, Rina Moshewu, who relayed the news of his discharge but declined to comment further because of the malicious rumors that circulated last week on social media claiming that Moshewu had passed away. And finally, sports activities in Kenya could be soon grind to a screeching halt after the government of Kenya cracked the whip to punish federations that have not yet compiled with the Sports Act of 2013 as stipulated in the Kenyan constitution. The Ministry of Sports has frozen funding for such federations and clubs affiliated to the capable entities. China Africa's Francis Motegi is in Nairobi, Kenya and filed this report. Sports Cabinet Secretary Hassan Wario says any federation that has not been registered under CAP 108 of the Societies Act had until August 2014 to comply with the Section 49 of the new Sports Act. The section requires that all sports organizations have to apply afresh at the Sports Registry Office to continue existing and conducting sporting mandates. This new directive by the sports docket may paralyze business in various sporting activities in the affected federations, a situation that has sent them into a mode of panic. Among the affected federations include Football Kenya Federation, Athletics Kenya, Kenya Rugby Union, Kenya Premier League Limited, Kenya Table Tennis Association, Cricket Kenya, Kenya Lawn Tennis, Chess Kenya, Kenya Hockey Union, and the Kenya Motorsports Federation. Those are your sports news at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka.
Africa Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, All Basutu Convention Party takes early election lead, China opposes a draft of UN sanctions against South Sudan, and Kenyan government appeals court ruling on security laws. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Sviso Mashiko, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Ismail Lowe with a track titled Jammu Africa.